Chapter Four of Clover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clover by Susan Coolidge. Chapter Four. Two Long Years in One Short Chapter. Katie's absence left a sad blank in the household. Everyone missed her, but nobody so much as Clover, who all her life long had been her roommate, confidant, and intimate friend. It was a great help that Rose was there for the first three lonely days. Dullness and sadness were impossible with that vivacious little person at hand, and so long as she stayed, Clover had small leisure to be mournful. Rose was so bright and merry and affectionate that Elsie and John were almost as much in love with her as Clover herself, and sat and sunned themselves in her warmth, so to speak, all day long, while Phil and Dory fairly quarrelled as to which should have the pleasure of doing little services for her and baby Rose. If she could have remained the summer through, all would have seemed easy, but that of course was impossible. Mr. Brown appeared with a provoking punctuality on the morning of the fourth day, prepared to carry his family away with him. He spent one night at Dr. Carr's, and they all liked him very much. No one could help it. He was so cordial and friendly and pleasant. Still, for all her liking, Clover could have found it in her heart to quite detest him as the final moment drew near. "'Let him go home without you,' she urged coaxingly. "'Stay with us all summer, you and little Rose. He can come back in September to fetch you, and it would be so delightful to us.' "'My dear, I couldn't live without Deniston until September,' said the disappointing Rose. "'It may not show itself to a casual observer, but I am really quite foolish about Deniston. I shouldn't be happy away from him at all. He's the only husband I've got. A poor thing but mine own, as the immortal William puts it.' "'Oh, dear,' groaned Clover, "'that is the way that Katie is going to talk about Ned, I suppose. Matrimony is the most aggravating condition of things for outsiders that was ever invented.' I wish nobody had invented it. Here it would be so nice for us to have you stay, and the moment that provoking husband of yours appears you can't think of anyone else. Too true, much too true. Now, Clovy, don't embitter our last moments with reproaches. It's hard enough to leave you as it is, when I've just found you again after all these years. I've had the most beautiful visit that ever was, and you've all been awfully dear and nice. Kiss me quick and let me go, as the song says. I only wish Burnett was next door to West Cedar Street. Next day Mr. Brown sailed away with his handful of roses, as Elsie sentimentally termed them, and indeed Rose by herself would have been a handful for almost any man, and Clover, like Lord Ulin, was left lamenting. Cousin Helen remained, however, and it was not till she too departed a week later that Clover fully recognized what it meant to have Katie married. Then, indeed, she could have found it in her heart to emulate Eugenie de la Ferenaise, and shed tears over all the little inanimate objects which her sister had left behind, the worn-out gloves, the old dressing slippers in the shoe-bag. But, dear me, we get used to everything, and it is fortunate that we do. Life is too full and hearts too flexible, and really sad things too sad for the survival of sentimental regrets over changes which do not involve real loss and the wide separation of death. In time, Clover learned to live without Katie, and to be cheerful still. Her cheerfulness was greatly helped by the letters which came regularly, and showed how contented Katie herself was. She and Ned were having a beautiful time, first in New York and making visits near it, 
then in Portsmouth and Portland, when the frigate moved on to these harbours, and in Newport, which was full and gay and amusing to the last degree. Later in August the letters came from Bar Harbour, where Katie had followed, in company with the Commodore's wife, who seemed as nice as her husband, and Clover heard of all manner of delightful doings—sails, excursions, receptions on board ship, and long moonlight paddles with Ned, who was an expert canoeist. Everybody was so wonderfully kind, Katie said, but Ned wrote to his sister that Katie was a great favorite. Everyone liked her, and his particular friends were all raging wildly round in quest of girls just like her to marry. But it's no use, for as I tell them, he added, that sort isn't made in batches. There's only one Katie, and happily she belongs to me, and the other fellows must get along as they can. This was all satisfactory and comforting, and Clover could endure a little loneliness herself, so long as her beloved Katie seemed so happy. She was very busy besides, and there were compensations, as she admitted to herself. She liked the consequence of being at the head of domestic affairs, and succeeding to Katie's position as Papa's special daughter, the person to whom he came for all he wanted, and to whom he told his little secrets. She and Elsie became more intimate than they had ever been before, and Elsie in her turn enjoyed being Clover's lieutenant, as Clover had been Katie's. So the summer did not seem long to any of them and when September was once past and they could begin to say, month after next, the time sped much faster. "'Mrs. Hall asked me this morning when the Worthingtons were coming,' said Johnny one day. "'It seems so funny to have Katie spoken of as the Worthingtons.' "'I only wish the Worthingtons would write and say when,' remarked Clover. "'It is more than a week since we heard from them.' The next day brought the wished-for letter, and the good news that Ned had a fortnight's leave and meant to bring Katie home the middle of November, and stay for Thanksgiving. After that the Natchitoches was to sail for an eighteen-months cruise to China and Japan, and then Ned would probably have two years ashore at the Torpedo Station or Naval Academy or somewhere, and they would start a little home for themselves. Meantime, wrote Katie, I am coming to spend a year and a half with you, if urged. Don't all speak at once, and don't mind saying so if you don't want me. The bitter drop in this pleasant intelligence, there generally is one, you know, was that the fortnight of Ned's day was to be spent at Mrs. Ashe's. It's her only chance to see Ned, said Katie, so I know you won't mind, for afterward you will have me for such a long visit. But they did mind very much. I don't think it's fair, cried Johnny hotly while Clover and Elsie exchanged disgusted looks. Katie belongs to us. Katie belongs to her husband, on the contrary, said Dr. Carr, overhearing her. You must learn that lesson once for all, children. There's no escape from the melancholy fact, and it's quite right and natural that Ned should wish to go to his sister, and she should want to have him. Ned, yes, but Katie. My dear, Katie is Ned, answered Dr. Carr with a twinkle. Then, noticing the extremely unconvinced expression of Johnny's face, he added more seriously, "'Don't be cross, children, and spoil all Katie's pleasure in coming home with your foolish jealousies. Clover, I trust you to take these young mutineers in hand and make them listen to reason.' Thus appealed to, Clover rallied her powers, and while laboring to bring Elsie and John to a proper frame of mind, schooled herself as well, so as to be able to treat Mrs. Ashe amiably when they met.' 
Dear, unconscious Polly, meanwhile, was devising all sorts of pleasant and hospitable plans designed to make Ned's stay a sort of continuous fate to everybody. She put on no airs over the preference shown her, and was altogether so kind and friendly and sweet that no one could quarrel with her even in thought. And Johnny herself had to forgive her, and be contented with a little whispered grumble to Dory now and then over the inconvenience of possessing people-in-law. And then Katie came. The same Katie, only, as Clover thought, nicer, brighter, dearer, and certainly better looking than ever. Sea air had tanned her a little, but the brown was becoming, and she had gained an ease and polish of manner which her sisters admired very much. And after all, it seemed to make little difference at which house they stayed, for they were in and out of both all day long, and Mrs. Ash threw her doors open to the cars and wanted some or all of them for every meal, so that except for the name of the thing, it was almost as satisfactory to have Katie over the way as occupying her old quarters. The fortnight sped only too rapidly. Ned departed, and Katie settled herself in the familiar corner to wait till he should come back again. Navy wives have to learn the hard lesson of patience in the long separations entailed by their husband's profession. Katie missed Ned sorely, but she was too unselfish to mope, or to let the others know how hard to bear his loss seemed to her. She never told anyone how she lay awake in stormy nights, or when the wind blew, and it seemed to blow oftener than usual that winter, imagining the frigate in a gale, and whispering little prayers for Ned's safety. Then her good sense would come back and remind her that wind in Burnett did not necessarily mean wind in Shanghai or Yokohama or wherever the Natchitoches might be, and she would put herself to sleep with the repetition of that lovely verse of Keeble's evening hymn, left out in most of the collections, but which was particularly dear to her. Thou ruler of the light and dark, guide through the tempest thine own ark, amid the howling wintry sea. We are in port if we have thee. So the winter passed, and the spring, and another summer came and went, with little change to the quiet Burnett household, and Katie's brief life with her husband began to seem dreamy and unreal, it lay so far behind. And then, with the beginning of the second winter, came a new anxiety. Phil, as we had said in the last chapter, had grown too fast to be very strong, and was the most delicate of the family in looks and health, though full of spirit and fun. Going out to skate with some other boys the week before Christmas, on a pond which was not so securely frozen as it looked, the ice gave way, and though no one was drowned, the whole party had a drenching and were thoroughly chilled. None of the others minded it much, but the exposure had a serious effect on Phil. He caught a bad cold which rapidly increased into pneumonia, and Christmas Day, usually such a bright one in the car household, was overshadowed by anxious forebodings, for Phil was seriously ill, and the doctor felt by no means sure how things would turn with him. The sisters nursed him devotedly, and by March he was out again. But he did not get well or lose the persistent little cough which kept him thin and weak. Dr. Carr tried this remedy and that, but nothing seemed to do much good, and Katie thought that her father looked graver and more anxious every time that he tested Phil's temperature or listened at his chest. "'It's not serious yet,' he told her in private, "'but I don't like the look of things. The boy is just at a turning point. Any little thing might set him one way or the other. I wish I could send him away from this damp lake climate.' 
but sending a half-sick boy away is not such an easy thing, nor was it quite clear where he ought to go. So matters drifted along for another month, and then Phil settled the question for himself by having a slight hemorrhage. It was evident that something must be done, and speedily, but what? Dr. Carr wrote to various medical acquaintances, and in reply pamphlets and letters poured in, each designed to prove that the particular part of the country to which the pamphlet or the letter referred was the only one to which it was at all worth while to consign an invalid with delicate lungs. One recommended Florida, another Georgia, a third South Carolina, a fourth and fifth recommended cold instead of heat, and an open-air life with the mercury at zero. It was hard to decide what was best. "'He ought not to go off alone, either,' said the puzzled father. "'He is neither old enough nor wise enough to manage by himself. "'But who to send with him is the puzzle. "'It doubles the expense, too.' "'Perhaps I,' began Katie, but her father cut her short with a gesture. "'No, Katie, I couldn't permit that. "'Your husband is due in a few weeks now. "'You must be free to go to him wherever he is, "'not hampered with the care of a sick brother. "'Besides, whoever takes care of Phil must be prepared for a long absence, "'at least a year. "'It must be either Clover or myself, "'and as it seems out of the question that I shall drop my practice for a year, "'Clover is the person.' "'Phil is seventeen now,' suggested Katie. "'That is not so very young.' "'No, not if he were in full health. "'Plenty of boys no older than he have gone out west by themselves "'and fared perfectly well. "'But in Phil's condition that would never answer. "'He has a tendency to be low-spirited about himself, too, "'and he needs incessant care and watchfulness.' "'Out west,' repeated Katie. "'Have you decided, then?' "'Yes.' The letter I had yesterday from Hope makes me pretty sure that St. Helens is the best place we have heard of. St. Helens? Where is that? It is one of the new health resorts in Colorado which has lately come into notice for consumptives. It's very high up, nearly, or quite, six thousand feet, and the air is said to be something remarkable. Clover will manage beautifully, I think. She is such a sensible little thing, said Katie. She seems to me, and he too, about as fit to go off two thousand miles by themselves as the babes in the wood, remarked Dr. Carr, who, like many other fathers, found it hard to realize that his children had outgrown their childhood. However, there's no hope for it. If I don't stay and grind away at the mill, there is no one to pay for this long journey. Clover will have to do her best. And a very good best it will be, you'll see, said Katie consolingly. "'Does Dr. Hope tell you anything about the place?' she added, turning over the letter which her father had handed her. "'Oh, he says the scenery is fine, and the mean rainfall is this, and the mean precipitation is that, and that boarding places can be had. That is pretty much all. So far as climate goes, it is the right place. But I presume the accommodations are poor enough. The children must go prepared to rough it. The town was only settled ten or eleven years ago. There hasn't been time to make things comfortable, remarked Dr. Carr, with a truly eastern ignorance of the rapid way in which things march in the far west. Clover's feelings when the decision was announced to her, it would be hard to explain in full. She was both confused and exhilarated by the sudden weight of responsibility laid upon her. To leave everybody and everything she had always been used to, and go away to such a long distance alone with Phil, made her gasp with a sense of dismay, while at the same time the idea that for the first time in her life she was trusted with something really important 
roused her energies and made her feel braced and valiant, like a soldier to whom some difficult enterprise is entrusted on the day of battle. Many consultations followed as to what the travellers should carry with them, by what route they would best go, and how to prepare for the journey. A great deal of contradictory advice was offered, as is usually the case when people are starting out on a voyage or a long railway ride. One friend wrote to recommend that they should provide themselves with a week's provisions in advance, and enclosed a list of crackers, jam, potted meats, tea, fruit, and hardware, which would have made a heavy load for a donkey or mule to carry. How were poor Clover and Phil to transport such a weight of things? Another advised against umbrellas and waterproof cloaks. What was the use of such things where it never rained? While a second letter, received the same day, assured them that thunder and hailstorms were things for which travellers in Colorado must live in a state of continual preparation. Who shall decide when doctors disagree? In the end, Clover concluded that it was best to follow the leadings of common sense and rational precaution, do about a quarter of what people advised, and leave the rest undone. And she found that this worked very well. As they knew so little of the resources of St. Helens, and there was such a strong impression prevailing in the family as to its being a rough sort of newly settled place, Clover and Katie judged it wise to pack a large box of stores to go out by freight, oatmeal and arrowroot and beef extract and Albert biscuits, things which Philly ought to have and which in a wild region might be hard to come by. Debbie filled all the corners with homemade dainties of various sorts, and Clover, besides a spirit lamp and a teapot, put into her trunks various small decorations, Japanese fans and pictures, photographs, a vase or two, books and a sofa pillow, things which took little room and which she thought would make their quarters look more comfortable in case they were very bare and unfurnished. People felt sorry for the probable hardships the brother and sister were to undergo, and they had as many little gifts and notes of sympathy and counsel as Katie herself when she was starting for Europe. But I am anticipating. Before the trunks were packed, Dr. Carr's anxieties about his babes in the wood were greatly allayed by a visit from Mrs. Hall. She came to tell him that she had heard of a possible matron for Clover. "'I am not acquainted with the lady myself,' she said, "'but my cousin, who writes about her, knows her quite well,' and says she is a highly respectable person, and belongs to nice people. Her sister, or someone, married a Phillips of Boston, and I have always heard that that family was one of the best there. She's had some malarial trouble, and is at the West now on account of it, staying with a friend in Omaha, but she wants to spend the summer at St. Helens, and as I know you have worried a good deal over having Clover and Phil go off by themselves, I thought it might be a comfort to you to hear of this Mrs. Watson.' "'You are very good. "'If she proves to be the right sort of person, "'it will be an immense comfort. "'Do you know when she wants to start?' "'About the end of May. "'Just the right time, you see. "'She could join Clover and Philip as they go through, "'which will work nicely for them all.' "'So it will. "'Well, this is quite a relief. "'Please write to your cousin, Mrs. Hall, "'and make the arrangement. "'I don't want Mrs. Watson to be burdened "'with any real care of the children, of course.' But if she can arrange to go along with them, and give Clover a word of advice now and then, should she need it, I shall be easier in my mind about them. Clover was only doubtfully grateful when she heard of this arrangement. "'Papa always will persist in thinking that I am a baby still,' she said to Katie, drawing her little figure up to look as tall as possible. "'I am twenty-two. I would have him remember. How do we know what this Mrs. Watson is like?' 
She may be the most disagreeable person in the world, for all Papa can tell. I really can't find it in my heart to be sorry that it has happened. Papa looks so much relieved by it, Katie rejoined. But all dissatisfactions and worries and misgivings took wings and flew away when, just ten days before the travellers were to start, a new and delightful change was made in the programme. Ned telegraphed that the ship, instead of coming to New York, was ordered to San Francisco to refit, and he wanted Katie to join him there early in June, prepared to spend the summer, while almost simultaneously came a letter from Mrs. Ashe, who with Amy had been staying a couple of months in New York, to say that, hearing of Ned's plan, had decided her also to take a trip to California with some friends who had previously asked her to join them. These friends were, it seemed, the Daytons of Albany. Mr. Dayton was a railroad magnate, and had the control of a private car in which the party were to travel. And Mrs. Ashe was authorized to invite Katie, and Clover, and Phil also, to go along with them, the former all the way to California, and the others as far as Denver, where the roads separated. This was truly delightful. Such an offer was surely worth a few days' delay. The plan seemed to settle itself all in one minute. Mrs. Watson, whom everyone now regretted as a complication, was the only difficulty. But a couple of telegrams settled that perplexity, and it was arranged that she should join them on the same train, though in a different car. To have Katie as a fellow traveller, and Mrs. Ashe and Amy made a different thing of the long journey, and Clover proceeded with her preparations in jubilant spirits. End of chapter 4 Recording by Hannah Mary